Geordi. I'm Lisa Francesca Nand, and you're listening to the Big Travel Podcast, exploring life stories through travel. Leveson Wood is a British explorer, writer and photographer who's travelled to over a hundred countries, many of them in war zones typically thought of as hostile or off the beaten track. His documentaries, best-selling books and photographs have enchanted people the world over. He's walked the whole length of the Nile, the world's longest river, walked the Himalayas, the world's highest mountain range, diced with gang leaders when walking the Americas, and has recently returned from his most ambitious expedition to date, a 5,000-mile circumnavigation of the Arabian Peninsula from Iraq to Lebanon. I'm delighted to have Leveson Wood on the Big Travel Podcast. So let's start with the Adventure Travel Show. You're at the Adventure Travel Show this weekend in London. Tell us a little bit about that. I am. I'm looking forward to it. It's just a great opportunity to hopefully share with um, a really interesting crowd, uh, people that you know want to do their own adventures or perhaps planning their own expeditions, um, you know, my own stories. And I'm mainly going to be talking about my recent journey around the Middle East, an Arabian journey, which is what we're calling it, and sharing my tales from places like Iraq, Syria, Yemen, all of the world's hotspots. So um, yeah, lots of tales, lots of unseen footage and lots of behind the scenes stuff as well. And the opportunity for people to come and buy my new book and ask questions. I hear the Adventure Travel Show has been going for 23 years. Is that right? Yeah. Well, no, it's epic. I mean, I've I've gone for the last sort of seven or eight years and it's always been great fun. Great. So it's almost like with you, it's like, where do I start? You've travelled to over 100 countries, I do believe. Something like that. Made best-selling (laughs) books and documentaries, walking the Nile, walking the Himalayas, walking the Americas. There's a lot of walking going on. Why? What was? What is it about walking that inspires you? Well, the walking journeys. Um, the, well, actually, just to sort of start, the, the the most recent two journeys actually weren't strictly walking. Um, that was kind of by any means. But no, for me, the walking was. Um, really just a device to go and explore a region at the, the slowest pace. You know, I'm not, I have to say, I'll put my hands up, I'm not um, just a really keen pedestrian. <laughs> um, actually, for me, it's always been about the travel, it's been about the people that you meet. But by forcing yourself to walk, you kind of force yourself to interact. And that, for me, it was never about breaking records or, you know, just getting from A to B, all the physical challenge. It was about the journey itself. And, and for me, the, the, the best bit about the journey is meeting interesting people and, and hopefully shedding light on some places that tend to be in the news for all the wrong reasons. So I've travelled to lots of conflict zones, post-conflict zones, places that have got a bit of a, a bad reputation, places that um, you know we see in the news because of conflict or terrorism or violence but actually it's important to remember that there are still millions of people living there getting on with their daily lives and for me it's been an opportunity to shine a light on these places and share the really important human stories. I think people don't don't realise that and I personally didn't realise this about Syria for example I was speaking to a guy in a kebab shop in, in Spain a few mm. weeks ago about his family back in Syria and he, he was like they don't really know there's a war on. Well this is it I mean not just Syria but Iraq um, lots of other countries that we, we, we sort of tar with the same brush. Actually, the conflict is often very localised. You know, you can go on holiday to parts of Afghanistan and have the best time. You know, I have myself. I've gone to the northeast of Afghanistan. They've never had Taliban there because ethnically it's not 
Taliban country. Likewise, in Syria, there are vast swathes of the country that are totally unaffected by the war. And fortunately, parts of parts of Iraq, places like Sudan, actually some of the best hospitality you'll get anywhere in the world. And and for me, that's it's an important thing to remember, not in any way to undermine the tragedy of the conflict, but to hopefully give people a sense of perspective and, and balance as well. It's not all doom and gloom. And actually in Syria, you know, I went to weddings. You know, we went to bars, nightclubs. You know, there, there are people just getting on with their normal life, you know, despite what we've seen in the news for the last seven or eight years. Talking about like the, the walking and the, and the seeing and the, the absorb, you know, you really get to absorb something mm. when you're actually going through the landscape rather than in an air-conditioned car, or especially when you're, you're flying over it. What do you think it is about the human condition that makes people want to travel, that makes people want to see what's over the next mountain or the horizon? Well, I think just to go back to your first point about walking, I mean, you know, human beings are designed to walk. You know, that's what we've evolved into as a species. I mean, it's in not just our physiology, but our psychology to want to explore. You know, the, the earliest, you know, cavemen who went off exploring Africa and beyond, you know, must have been driven by something. It wasn't just competition for resources because there just wasn't that many people and there's lots of space so it must have been something deeper and I think you know that sense of curiosity and innate explorer gene almost is, is within us all I think that's something that for me is interesting to to sort of look into and the sense of interest that I've had around the world about where I've been to and and for me personally to find out from local people, you know, what their interests are and their sense of curiosity and their desires to see what's beyond the next horizon. It's all part and parcel of, of the same thing. And, and for me, that's what these journeys are about. It's about, for myself as a personal journey, exploring new places, but really it's about talking to local people, finding out what the reality of life is where they live and, and their own journeys, wherever they've been. What, where does it come from in you? Where did this adventurous spirit, exploratory spirit start? <laughs> I don't know. I think um, I've always been fortunate to, to travel. My parents were both teachers from a very humble background, but they always just encouraged me to travel. And, you know, whether that was caravanning in Wales or traipsing across Scotland and camping, which is what we, we used to do in my childhood. I think that just, for me, those mini expeditions were really the beginning of of something much bigger and at the earliest opportunity you know when I was 18 I did the very cliche gap year and went off to Thailand and India and all these sorts of places and Can't had a great time. It's brilliant but you know I still love backpacking now you know it's it's kind of it's just the, the sense of liberate you know liberation and, and freedom that I love that to be able to just go somewhere with no fixed itinerary not booking accommodation before you go just go and turn up and have an adventure and that's what adventure really is all about I think it's about freedom and, and so that is really where it started for me. And, and I, I was determined from a young age to make that my career somehow. I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it, but I knew that one day I'd be able to do it. And I stuck, I stuck to my guns and, and with a lot of hard work and, um, you know, a, a sort of a vision, I guess. I wanted to, to, to find a way of making it a lifestyle. And, and by doing lots of independent travel, by joining the army, I spent five years in the parachute regiment, which gave me lots of skills, lots of contacts, um, and the confidence to, to sort of do other things. Beyond that, I worked for a charity in Africa. I then continued with my own travels. I set up a guiding and expedition company, 
which kind of led on into the world of media and, and TV, but very much behind the scenes. I was I was pretty much like a producer, a fixer, hand-holding journalists, taking them to dangerous places, you know, looking after the logistics, the security and, and the like. Um, and then I just had this great opportunity. Um, I'd, I'd always wanted to write. I'd, I'd always loved writing and photography. So bringing those passions together, I had this idea that I wanted to walk the length of the River Nile. And luckily it was kind of picked up by the TV people and um, it all, that changed everything for me. And that's when you first came to my attention certainly and probably a lot of it sounds like the, the wider public walking the Nile was an in, incredible you know thing to watch and I can't imagine what it would be like to actually go through that and I think obviously one of the most poignant points is when a journalist that was traveling with you died because of heat stroke and that mm. really brings it home is you're actually doing something really rather dangerous here yeah no it certainly brought it home for me I mean it was an expedition and expeditions are not without risk and I, I knew that from the start. I think everybody concerned knew that from the start. But I'd spent, you know, two years planning for this journey, you know, very much doing lots of, you know, the practical planning, but the risk assessments, the there's lots that go into these. It's not just a case of, you know, recklessly jaunting off into the, the African sunset. There's a lot more to it than that. And I think that's what people tend to forget. There's, there's many, many months, if not years, of, of, of planning, of preparation, from a you know bureaucratic standpoint, but but making sure you're always prepared in every eventuality, you know, whether that's from you know looking after the safety, looking after the security, it, the whole spectrum really. So you know it was it was a real tragedy and, and a very poignant moment um, that really brought home the dangers of the journey for me. But at the same time, I think it's an important thing to remember that you know it, there are risks in everything that we do, and and actually what I found across my expeditions, you know, where you know having travelled across some of the you know, arguably some of the most dangerous places in the world. Actually, the most dangerous things of all are the more mundane, getting ill, getting malaria, being involved in a road traffic accident. Those, those are always the most dangerous things, far more so than getting shot at by ISIS or having a spear thrown at you or getting munched by a crocodile. Because well, they're probably not going to happen to you, hopefully. I mean, they do. Well, they might. They, 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 they you're do. less likely to but, happen. But, but, you know, in terms of just... I guess the, the, the ratio of exposure to, to danger, it's always going to be the, the boring stuff that gets you. Like the car accident that you had. Exactly. That was in walking the Himalayas. Tell yeah, that was in the pool. Uh, tell me what happened. So, um, so yeah, we'd been walking. It was about halfway through the journey or so. I was in, in uh, the mountains of Nepal. We'd finished walking for the day. It was getting dark. And we'd been told we weren't allowed to camp in this particular village because it was run by some Maoist groups and they were very polite but they said you know you need to go to the next town and, and find a guest house there so you know we, we didn't really have much choice other than to find a taxi to take us to the next town which is about three or four miles away got into a, a taxi um, there was myself there was Binod my guide um, and also my brother who'd literally flown out two days before to come on holiday to visit me as well as the driver and um, his friend who was a policeman so off we drove over the mountains, got over to the sort of a, the high pass, and just as we're cresting this mountain, it was already pitch black at this point, the uh, the brakes failed. I heard the brake cable snap, and the car just picked up more and more speed. And I don't know if you've been to Nepal, but the roads there are, you know, pretty treacherous. It's just a very narrow road with a, with a sheer drop-off. There's no barriers or anything like that. So, um, terrifying experience, and yeah, the, it, it was awful. I mean, the car basically just went flying off the edge of this cliff into the night, into the jungle. Um, yeah, and it, it transpired later. It was about 160 metres drop. Um, the car bounced and rolled probably 10 times before coming to a halt on a ledge over a river. The driver and the policeman had been thrown clear of the car 
broken pretty much every bone in the body. I got thrown out, I think, something on, you know, just before the bottom through the windscreen and uh, luckily survived, you know, with a few broken bones, but still alive. So uh, very, very lucky to survive. You know, I was rescued by the local villagers, but because it was the monsoon season, it was raining, a helicopter couldn't fly in for three days. So it took three days before I managed to get rescued and taken back to Kathmandu. Someone must have seen the accident happen, otherwise you could have just been left there. Well, I think the noise probably, I mean, the local village was, was about half a mile away, but somebody must have woken up out of bed and, you know, was kind enough to come and look for us. Does it change you, that happening? I think it does. I think, you know, you kind of, you, you realise your own mortality. I mean, I've been in situations plenty of times before where it's come, you know, very close calls, but that was probably the closest that I'd ever fancy getting to... Uh, to the end you know but uh no it does it brings everything into into question um you know that i certainly don't like going on those roads anytime you know ever since um so yeah no it's difficult it's a difficult one to deal with but i'm just very grateful that that i managed to get through it i'm feeling a bit sorry for your mum right now actually she must be terrified whenever you go off on anything like that well i think yeah because especially because my brother was there as well for for, for us both to be in the situation so I mean, he was, was he in the car crash? he was in the car yeah as well yeah so how was he he was okay actually i mean he hurt his back but um yeah he was he's okay but um no i kind of i told my mum and I just been involved in a little accident. She didn't really, don't think she really appreciated the extent until she watched on TV. I suppose if you're there and talking, that's, you know, the main yeah. thing, really. Yeah. I wanted to just go back to your military service. When you went to, you served in Afghanistan? Yes, that's right. Yeah, back um, in 2008. Was that the first time you'd been there? No, I'd been there before, actually. I'd been there in yeah, 2004 when I was 22, I think I was at the time. I hitchhiked and walked across Afghanistan. What made um, you want to do that? I mean, I, I, I've always wanted to go and it sounds like the most beautiful place. I read when I was a, a young teen or a child, I read a story about Dervla Murphy mm. who cycled across Afghanistan in the 60s. And it yeah. sounded like the most beautiful welcoming gorgeous country and now it feels i mean obviously people are still going but it feels still like a a, a no-go go area in terms of tourism no it is it's a beautiful country there are like i said before there, there are places you can go and it's absolutely safe the wakan corridor in the northeast is totally accessible and well worth a visit you know you don't go in you have to go via tajikistan in the north and cross over that way and there are p definitely places you want to avoid but no it's, it's a beautiful country when i was there in 2004 when it was still relatively safe it was before things you know the resurgence of the taliban and so on in 2006 but i'd always wanted to travel the length of the silk road so i'd literally just graduated from university i um I fancied hitchhiking, and so I did. I put my thumb up at Grantham Services on the M1 and on the A1, and, uh, and went down to Calais, and then carried on through Europe, through Russia, over the Caucasus, into Iran, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and finally made it to India. That's incredible. That's not like you, you know, sort of turning up in Bangkok and turning off down the Kalsan Road to get your dreadlocks, <laughs> you know, and you're, you're No, that was, ga that, was that was gap year number two. So it you'd was... already done the Afghanistan so and the... the uh, no, I'd already done the... I, di I did the Thailand stuff when I was 18. Oh, you did. And, okay. then, uh, and then sort of you know, went for something slightly more ambitious. Did you ever read that book called, I think it was called Are You Experienced by William Sutcliffe? And no. It was about backpackers and it was, it literally spoke about, I mean, you go to places like back Bangkok, you can see people sort of changing as they walk down yeah. the road, you know, getting their tats, getting their, <laughs> their local clothes and their sort of, you know, yeah, backpacker there's a lot of There's a lot of good ideas at the time, you know, you come back and you're still wearing your fisherman's pants. And, yeah, uh, a bit cold when you get back Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't last long. <laughs> so what's, oh God, what, I mean, what really stands out to you about those two journeys? the walking the Nile and the walking the Himalayas 
that's a difficult question. It's hard because, you know, Niall was nine months, Himalayas was six months. To pick out any particular... It, for me, it was about the the the, hol the holistic experience of being away, being immersed into other people's cultures, being away from reality, whatever that might mean, for so long. You kind of... For you don't forget about home, but you forget about that life and you have to really separate it and you put your you it's almost like being it's a bit like in the army you're on a tour mentality you know you have to separate the two for your own sanity really and to to get through it and um and that's kind of where i've kind of been for the last five years really is, is sort of away for six to nine months every year come back you know write a book do some speaking and then plan the next one so it's been quite a cyclical ex you know, experience so but it's been in this sort of alternate reality is it Phil? i don't know i'm not sure what i what i believe reality is anymore having been through all that for me i think it's just it's seeing other people's realities and, and telling their stories is, is what i want to sort of hopefully achieve from all of this standout moments there's so many meeting lots of interesting people people like the dalai lama in in the himalayas but probably, actually, the people that leave the, the greatest impression are the people that I spend the most time with, which is the local guide. So in, on the Nile, I had this great Congolese guide called Boston, I spent like four months with. In the Himalayas, Binod, who I'd actually met on my first gap year uh, when I was 19. I'd always promised that I'd return to Nepal and he could be my guide. So I don't think he was quite expecting to, to come with me for six months, though. You know, So for him, you know, it was great. He'd never been outside of Nepal, he'd never been to India, he'd never seen the Ganges. It was his life ambition to bathe in the Ganges, being a devout Hindu. So I love the fact that he's your guide and he's never been and there. And he's never been there. But, you know, it's it's about the language, it's about the culture and, and actually just having a, a decent companion along the way. I mean, any, you know, anyone can read a map. You don't need people to tell you the way. And actually, usually when you ask locals the way, they don't know anyway. So you've got to be over that sort of things yourself. But it's, it's about having a local person who, you know, just knows the, the do's and don'ts. What, what were the Ganges like? Where was? Was. Was. Yeah. What was the Ganges? <laughs> uh, hmm. So I, I, I don't know, I love that part of India. I love Rishikesh and Haridwar. And for me, it, it does feel very spiritual. I mean, we, there was, I mean it's, there's always some festival or other going on there. And when I was in Rishikesh, there was, you know, millions of people all converging. Um, it wasn't holy, it wasn't, it wasn't that festival, but this, it was an amazing celebration. And yeah, to, to see that, to feel that, that sense of community is, is something quite special. And likewise, throughout you know, these, these journeys, you encounter these, these great gatherings, some big, some small, but that's really what, for me, interests me, is what bring, unites people, what brings people together. Oh, what sort of gatherings, like sort of weddings and it festivals? Can be, and... It can be festivals, it can be, you know, the, the, the changing of the seasons, you know, in the Himalayas, you know, the, when you see these shepherds, whether in, in Afghanistan, for instance, we follow the migratory route of the Kyrgyz, and these are the descendants of Genghis Khan. We still live in yurts. They, you know, their entire existence revolves around yaks and uh, camels and goats. And that's what they do. They're on the move. And we, we caught them just as they were packing up their yurts, moving to the next camp. And so, you know, it's, it's great to see these traditional cultures thriving. Although, sadly, it's probably the last generation in which we'll probably see them. How do they receive you overall? Uh, generally, with, with amazing hospitality. You know, I've, I've been welcomed in, into some amazing communities around the world, and often in places that you'd least expect it. Everywhere from places like Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq, through to the ganglands of Central America. You know, I would never forget, you know, my journey through Central America. I was in Honduras in um, a city called San Pedro Sula, 
which was the murder capital of the world. You know, average, just in one district alone, you know, usually three or four people get killed every night, you know. So a terrible place, really, in that respect. But, you know, the journey, I had to go straight through the middle of the city and it's very much divided. You've got the sort of the area that the police are in control of and then the area that the gangs are in control of, of which there's two main gangs. Um, and they're always killing each other. But I knew that I couldn't just ignore this and it's it an integral part of the story. So I thought, I'll try my luck and can I walk straight through the middle of these gangland areas? And actually the, the two gang bosses of these rival gangs were both in prison at the time. But I met this guy, he's like, yeah, sure. And he phoned up the prison, spoke to the gang boss and got his permission for me to travel through. And he said, yeah, no problem. Just um, you're not allowed to go until tomorrow evening though because um, we, we just want to send the boys out to to go and litter pick and clean up the graffiti <laughs> which is just you know bizarre when you're speaking over the phone to a, a gang boss who's in jail you know it's very surreal but you know it's it's like that you know people I think see when I go to places people see it as an opportunity to tell their own story to highlight their own causes you know and I'm not there to to push people's propaganda but it, I think it gives me an access to, to go into these places without any agenda, without any preconceived ideas and let people tell the story. And that's how I've managed to get into places like Russia, Iran, Syria, because if people go, you know, I'm not there to push a political agenda. I'm not there with any judgment. People tell their own stories. Do you ever feel scared? Not from going into places like that. No, not really. Um, I mean, you've got to be very aware of the dangers you've got it. But, but I guess my army experience has taught me that just because there's lots of men with guns doesn't automatically mean you're going to get shot you know there are ways to mitigate the, those risks you know the biggest dangers are often like i said before the more mundane the boring but also you've got to be careful of wildlife you've got to be careful of you know that that's something you've got to be particularly careful of you know along the nile i was getting you know walking through national parks where there's, there's inherent dangers with with that but no i don't i don't tend to get scared with things like that just for me it, it's getting into dodgy cars yeah. Which you can do here. You know, people get afraid of, you know, a lot of people are, ner are nervous of flying, but actually you're far more likely to die on the motorway on the way, on the way to the airport. Of course you are. <laughs> I mean, I ride a motorbike, you oh, know, God, and that, that in itself go. is probably the, the, the riskiest thing oh, I've yes. ever done. I've lost friends through motorbikes, mm. but they're still, they've still got a certain appeal. You know, they do. Yeah, yeah. Certainly in London where the traffic's yeah. not bad. <laughs> but they've got more of an appeal. There's something about a freedom of getting on a No, motorbike. I enjoy it. I do enjoy it. It's, it's even good. even more writing a book recently and, and remembering like going like motorbike rides with no helmets, which we always used to do years ago. I grew up in yeah. Spain and nobody wore my helmet. I think that's why I lost so many friends. But uh, that freedom, you know, of like mm. the warm air and the yeah. you know, the breeze going through your hair and I mean, obviously, it's not the same on a wet January or February in, in London. <laughs> One of your most recent journeys is you've just done an epic expedition, it sounds like, 5,000 miles circumnavigation of the Arabian Peninsula. Tell me about that. Yeah, that, that's been the culmination of 15 years' work for me because the first time I travelled uh, to the Middle East was as a 21-year-old. I was at university, I think I was in my second year at university, and um, it was 2003, which was the year of the Iraq invasion. I was just doing some backpacking around Egypt, Jordan and Israel and through various circumstances I found myself in Baghdad, <laughs> bizarrely. Um, As one does. You, yeah, but yeah, and, and I was determined to, to, to return to the Middle East after that journey because I found it such a complex and difficult place to understand because it's so controversial, so complex, but um, I thought that, that needs to be the next big expedition for me. Well, I remember here, you know, there were big headlines saying yeah. war 
you know, in Baghdad. And there you are, you're in Baghdad in 2003. What was that like? Well, for me, it was, I remember thinking, is this a good idea? <laughs> <laughs> and my mum thought I was on holiday in Greece at the time. <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, I, actually somebody told, I met this guy who said, you know what, yes, there's war, yes, there's, there's fighting, but you know what, there's also however many million, 50-something million people living there, they're not all dying all at once. It's not like that. It doesn't happen like that. And it stuck with me. It's actually, you know, it, actually, if you're careful and you plan and, and so on. And I went there and it was fine. Didn't, it was why never why did you go there? What took you well, there? Well, because I was stuck, you see. I was in Jordan and there'd been a spate of suicide bombings, both in Israel and, and other places, which meant that all the borders were closed off. The only option was flying home, but I couldn't do that because I didn't have any money. And my mum thought I was on holiday in Greece anyway. Um, so the only border that was open was to the east, to Iraq, mainly because there was American soldiers on it. So I remember hitchhiking to the border. The American soldiers there were trying to sell me a gun. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I found myself in Baghdad and then it took me about a week to escape Iraq by hitchhiking north through Mosul, through Tikrit. This was when Saddam Hussein was still down that hole and nobody knew where he was. So there was a big manhunt going on. Yeah, and I managed to blag a lift with some mercenaries who were heading north to Turkey so did you feel it at any point in danger again no it's totally fine it's it got like something missing in terms of the fear danger gene well no I think it was you know as a 21 year old it was quite exciting and it's probably quite reckless but it was exciting and you know coming back to the present day I wanted to go back and, and revisit those areas and see if anything had changed you know better worse whatever and so I came up with the idea to do a full circumnavigation of the Arabian Peninsula, starting in starting in Syria, in the Kurdish areas, then went through Iraq, down through the Gulf, across the empty quarter desert in Oman, into Yemen, then had to make a slight detour for various reasons, uh, which involved me taking a fishing boat around the coast of Yemen, got dropped off in Somalia, and then went from Somalia up to Djibouti, Saudi Arabia, up through Jordan, and then basically retraced my own steps from whatever it was 15 years previous. And had it changed? In some ways, yes. In a lot of ways, no. Still lots of violence, perhaps even more conflict than there was then. Going to Syria and seeing the dis absolute destruction there. I mean, I was, I was in Mosul in 2003 when it was a thriving city. And then going back and seeing the shell of the city having been virtually completely flattened, you know, was, was very saddening to see. But there was, there was still a sense of hope and, and a sense of humour and uh, the good traits of humanity as well. What was the most surprising thing about that journey? Probably a couple of things, really. Going to places like, I mean, I went to Saudi Arabia kind of expecting the worst. I thought it was going to be just this really dry, awful place. I don't know, maybe I was sort of falling foul to stereotypes there. But actually going to the south, to Jeddah and to the Asia Mountains, you meet these amazing tribes. Jeddah's quite, you know, it feels quite a progressive city. There's like, there's a McDonald's on every corner and <laughs> there's people in shorts and, you know, not, not all the women are covered. You know, it's kind of, it's kind of, yeah, refreshing to see. But then you go other places where it's, it is exactly how you imagine. Where else? Syria was, you know, going to Damascus. I mean, I've been to Syria before, but going to Damascus and actually the centre of Damascus has thankfully been spared of, of, of much of the, the fighting and actually... It's still a thriving town. There's still a bustling market. There is, you know, beautiful hotels. There's, there's wine bars. There's nightclubs. There's coffee shops. There's great restaurants. And people forget that. You know, millions of people are, you know, literally cracking on with life. 
So that for me was good to, to see. And uh, and also Lebanon. Lebanon was a country that I'd not been to before. I've always wanted to go. And it it's so beautiful. List. You can go skiing in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's uh, got great beaches. My brother so. was there a couple of years ago and said it's amazing. I'd yeah. like to go. And I'd I was going to go and then it, things just kicked off again. It, it always seems to happen like that. I was on my way to Syria as well mm. uh, and things kicked off. Talking of wildlife, which you did mention earlier, you were I read re- recently that you were doing a marathon in Kenya and yeah. there were potential encounters with large beasts <laughs> from that journey. So I was in Kenya in, uh, I think, June last year. And yeah, it was. It, they have this thing called the Safaricom Marathon, which is through the Lewa Wildlife Reserve. And uh, it's in aid of the Tusk Trust charity, a conservation charity. And it's amazing because you run through a national park, basically. Must must sort of spur you on, knowing that there and might be sort of well, like you lions do. You and see, You see, you know, you're running along, there's rhino, there's giraffe, there's antelope running around all over the place um so it's it's kind of quite surreal um they do have you know there's a helicopter that goes ahead to to sort of keep keep the wildlife away but um but still it's it's an amazing experience highly recommended if anyone wants to do a run that's a bit different then that's the one i interviewed um another major from the army actually ken hames um a while back and he just got attacked by a rhino in namibia and um, so this is quite the sort of dangerous things we just running past rhinos and that sort of thing well there's plenty i mean there's you know there's a good couple of thousand people so you've got to be unlucky to be be the one that the rhino goes after haven't you must be a bit surreal for the rhinos as well they have a couple of thousand <laughs> yeah, people they, suddenly running the you. rhinos tend to keep their distance they're not they're not daft Christ, i'd be worried walk i am worried walking over a field of cows you know <laughs> you hear about people getting trampled by them let alone running through the uh, the safari in kenya do you think that um all the travels you do you talk about one of the things you talk about is connecting with the you know humans and people all over the world mm. how do you think the world is moving in terms of how we're connected to each other these days do you think things are improving getting better worse um no i think they're getting better yeah no i'm, I'm an optimist you know technology's changed everything for everybody around the world and i've seen that change from the first you know my early travels when i was a teenager when you know, I didn't even have a mobile phone and, uh, you know, e- email, you had to go and find an internet cafe, which of which there might be one or two in the entire country, to nowadays where everyone's got a smartphone, you know, even, you know, tribesmen in, in the middle of the Sahara Desert, they've still got a smartphone, you know. I've met, you know, people with rings through their noses wearing grass skirts in the middle of, in the, middle of the jungle in Central America, they've still got a smartphone, they're still on Facebook. People, there's no signal there. They'll literally get in their dugout canoe and paddle for three days to go to the town to log onto Facebook. Not, not just because they're addicted to social media, but actually for them, it's the way they communicate. You know, far better to do that than many other ways. So actually, it, it's just, you know, it really has changed everything. I'm friends with most of my guides, you know, and we keep in touch on social media. It, it really has made a, an enormous impact. If I you're think, wearing a grass skirt, where do you tuck your mobile phone? <laughs> usually goes in the belt. I mean, in Saudi Arabia, you know, you get these guys who've got a, an AK-47 and they've got a big curved dagger, which is part of their traditional tribal attire you know in their belt and then they've got two mobile phones stuck either side and I it's think kind of, i've seen some of those guys follow me on twitter actually when yeah. your profile pics are like oh that's a bit weird <laughs> how did you find me but like you know it's 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 remarkable and, and, and actually i think it's generally a positive thing you know it's helped people connect it's it's helped families stay in touch old friends and so on uh, it's not without its downsides as we all know but 
I think that really is probably a, just more of a, a plague in the West of, of this addiction to it. But um, for most people around the world, it's it's been pretty positive. Particularly in Africa, I was reading something about uh, most people in Africa, because you probably won't have a computer, but you do all your banking, you do all your really important stuff. On, oh, yeah, uh, mobile money in, in Africa is, is revolutionary. I mean, people don't have bank accounts, people don't have computers, but what they do have is the ability to pay for their, you know, you go into a local shack that, to buy your bread and they won't, nobody pays in cash anymore. It's all done. You're, you, you text the shop owner, you, you text them whatever it is, you know, $1 for your weekly shop and, and that's it. Well, it's, um, it's incredible how things have changed so quickly as well. Yeah. Right, I've got a few more questions for you before I ask you a quick round of questions from listeners. Yep. Oh, you have some great skills, like you can skin rabbits and you've eaten some pretty dreadful things. What is your party trick skill? What's your most impressive <laughs> skill? My party trick? Oh, well, I've, I've recently taken up yoga. I can now do a a headstand which I'm quite proud of <laughs> it's pretty good I was thinking I was in the gym the other day and there's a wall where you can do your, your handstands I was thinking I used to just spend half my life upside down when I was 10 years old but now I think I'd no, be quite nervous yeah to do well it. I, I, yeah probably the last time I did it was probably when I was 10 and then suddenly you find yourself getting a bit creaky and I was like okay I need to start I need to do something about this you need to start this. doing some headstands especially when you do so much walking around you know and, and probably not as much stretching as I should so I yeah I did a bit of yoga recently and it's um yeah it's good it's a good it's a nice way of, of unwinding so that's that's my current party trick yeah. I've also read that you want to spend more time at home and uh, that one of the things you don't have obviously you've sort of sacrificed quite a lot of social life you know disappearing for half the year is that you're on your next big trip you'll go on a wife hunt which I love <laughs> the idea of that because it's kind of like you'll find one you know, drag her back to the cave. Oh dear, don't, don't believe everything you read in the newspapers. <laughs> Are you on the hunt for a while? Particularly not The Guardian. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where that one came out. I'm not going to. I shan't comment on that. <laughs> we'll see. Well, you know, I'd like, you know, I would, I would like to, to sort of. To have um, a more normal life, maybe. Well, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think I'll always travel. I love traveling. I love making these documentaries and writing books. So it's, it's a massive part of my life. Um, but yeah, I think. I've spent a lot of time away and that does have does have an impact on your, your your sort of private life and it's certainly you know put paid to perfectly good relationships myself so hopefully with a bit more stability now things will change and you want to like hang out and do normal things like go down the pub yeah yeah, yeah don't no, we all definitely. don't we all do some headstands <laughs> well that has happened <laughs> <laughs> now that is a party trick headstands while drinking a pint right I've got some listeners questions because yeah. everyone was so excited on my social media when I said that I was going to interview you and we've had this one from Gabby who said Nicholas Lindhurst said he was filming in Uganda and someone said to him hello Dave as he walked through the jungle <laughs> have you ever been recognised in a totally obscure or random place I have yeah usually at airports actually although the other week um, uh, it's just before Christmas. I had this guy who, was, who clearly had a few pints in him uh, come up to me. He's like, oh, you're that ex-army bloke, aren't you? And I was like, oh, OK, yeah, that's me. He's like, yeah, you were in the SAS. I was like, OK, that's not me. But uh, maybe he sort of got his thing, wires crossed. And he, he was just, then he got quite aggressive. He was like, yeah, you know. And then it. And then I realised he was actually, he thought I was Aunt Middleton. <laughs> <laughs> Um, did you he, go along with it? Well, I, yeah, I did for a bit. He, he was trying to, like, he said, yeah, I think I'm, I'm, I'm harder than you. I'm going to beat you up. I was like, okay, right. I'm not who you think I am. <laughs> that must be an occupational hazard, though, people thinking you're, you know, wanting to have a go. You know what? I've been very lucky. I don't get too much, too much hassle, really. People don't, I think people expect me to be on a mountain or in a jungle, not in, not in, uh, you know, London or wherever. So uh, I occasionally shave, which which kind of is my cover. <laughs> <laughs> George says, if on your next expedition you could take somebody with you, who would it be and why? One of my favourite journeys was 
was walking the Americas purely because my guide Alberto it was just this amazing character he was just so funny so actually we've traveled quite a lot since as well so if I if ever I'm going to off to do a, a big journey you know I'll try and encourage him to to come along and join me for at least a bit what's yeah. so good about Alberto he's just funny he just he, he he's he's never complained about anything in his life He's a real, he's just got a real good attitude, really. He's up for anything. He's, he's, he's hilarious. He's a real joker. And, you know, we became such good friends after spending, you know, months traveling Must be really together. intense. I mean, I used to go on a lot of press trips, which is just like a bunch of yeah. journalists getting drunk in some posh resort and getting everything paid for you. It's like, I'm not complaining, but the relationships, <laughs> even just in a few days, yeah. are quite intense. Well, if you, yeah, exactly. If you're traveling with somebody, you, you've really got to get on. And actually, in five months of traveling, we didn't fall out once. So it, it, I think if you find somebody like that, you know, they're worth keeping on to. That's the sort of wife you need to find. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, Alex says, have you ever been close to giving up on any of your journeys when you've just thought, Oh God, this is a nightmare going mm. home. I mean, there's been plenty of times, particularly on the Nile, because that was really my first big test of my own limits, physically, emotionally. And there were definitely times then. It was, it was I'd gone through some pretty hard things, particularly, you know, the death of, of Matt's power um, and then a couple of other personal things that, that just made it a really, really difficult time. And I wasn't even halfway and it was just like, God, do I, what am I doing with my life? You know, all my mates are on holiday and I'd be I remember it was my birthday, it was May. I was in the middle of the Sahara Desert thinking, what on earth? I should just go home and get a job. But then, you know, I kind of, you just find the motivation somewhere and remind yourself, actually, we're very, um, you know, I feel very lucky and privileged to be able to do this. At that time, though, I had no idea whether or not it was going to be a success. I had no idea whether or not it was going to be able to be televised or how it would do, how it would be received. You know, for all I knew, it could have gone out on some obscure channel, you know, at 3 a.m. and nobody would have seen it. So at that stage, everything was very uncertain. But by the perseverance and by sticking to it, you know, I'm very lucky that it all worked out. You must have been really chuffed when it was really successful. Because as a travel journalist myself, who's, who would mm. love to you know, have your, your uh, level of success, if, you, if no, I don't want to go off and do anything <laughs> too dangerous. I certainly don't want to be sitting on my own in a tent next to the Nile <laughs> on my birthday. Um, you know, that, that, must, that is like the ultimate dream. Yeah, no, it was. I mean, I had no idea at the time when I was doing it. I mean, I'd, I'd put all my eggs in one basket at this stage. I'd literally sold up everything and I was completely skinned and was like, I'm doing this, uh, you know, come what may. And, and it was at a time in my life when I had the opportunity to do that. I think I was like, I was up 30 or 31 or just turned and I had no responsibilities. I'd just left the army and it was kind of right to give it a, you know, and I think there are whatever field you're in, whatever industry, you know, if you just the company, if you've got the opportunity to do that, do it. What's the worst that can happen? Yeah, um, for me, I, I took the risk and it, uh, and luckily it paid off. And when it did, it was, it was kind of like, it, it was poetic justice in many respects. And I felt very glad that I'd taken those risks because it, you know, it doesn't work out for everybody, does it? So I'm No, very... it doesn't. But you have to take risks. So if, if you don't do, if you don't try, then you yeah. just don't know, do you? All right, we've got another question, another couple of questions. Sean says, where on your travels have you enjoyed the best meals? And she is hoping you say Georgia because she loves Georgian food, but don't <laughs> feel obliged to say Georgia. Well, no, actually I do. I really enjoyed it. So the two journeys, you know, re the two most recent journeys, Russia to Iran over the Caucasus and around the Middle East. Although around the Middle East, there was plenty of times when goat and rice was, was came, became a bit monotonous. But certainly the Caucasus now, I mean, I have to say the food there and Iran as well is just amazing. And they have these enormous feasts. You know, there's no such thing as going for a light lunch in, in Georgia or Azerbaijan or Armenia or Iran. You know, you go there and you order a salad and they'll come with a table full of 20 different plates and... 
Yeah, I think I actually put on weight on that expedition. <laughs> Despite walking however many thousands of miles. And Toby says, oh, I love this question. What's the most lost you've ever been? Most lost? Ooh. I don't mean emotionally. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think it's difficult. I wouldn't say lost because it, it's very difficult to get lost now. You know, I mean, I don't carry big paper maps people think that i'm you know i wear a pith helmet and carry big you know it doesn't work like that you you um you know you go by google earth you know that's just the way where it is so there was i was in india i was in in kashmir on the border there and there's a place called the gurez valley which is a very remote place and no phone signal so you, you can there are certain ways you can still use google maps with with um, caching and so on. But, but basically I was with my mate Ash, who was sort of filming as well. And we also had a local guide with some horses, but the horses were quite slow. So Ash and I decided to go out ahead and we'd, we'd agreed where we were gonna meet. But when we got there, it was sort of already late afternoon. There was no, the horses were nowhere to be found. So we thought perhaps they'd gone on ahead or we'd missed them or whatever. So we thought, okay, well, we know where we're staying the night. It's another five miles, not too far. We can do that in an hour and a half just before dark. So off we went. The only problem was we took the wrong path. So we ended up at the bottom of this ravine thinking that we, that we could cross the river, but no, the river was flooded. It was impossible to get across by which time now it was dark. So. And it, you don't want to be lost in the Himalayas at night in the dark. It was cold, no. and we had no. You know, we had a blocker, we had a bottle of water, and luckily I had a lighter. That was it. That's all we had. All our bags, everything else, food was was on the horses. So we couldn't climb. We tried climbing out of the valley, but it's too. It was just impossible. So we ended up basically having to make a shelter. It was probably the closest sort of survival um, situation I found myself in because it was, you know, it was about freezing. It was blooming cold. We had no food. We weren't going to starve to death in one night, but still, you know, when, you, when you're hungry and you're tired, that's when you make mistakes. So we, we made a shelter, we made, we made a fire, and we basically just spent the whole night shivering, very, very cold. Did you cuddle up? They say that's the best thing to well, do. Well, because we'd made a fire, it was all right, but we were just very, it was just nonstop rain. It was, it was a, yeah, that was, that was a grim experience and a real lesson, you know, stay with your guides. How did you find your way out? Well, the next morning, the guy with the, guy with the horses had gone on to the village and he'd raised the alarm, so actually the... The, the entire, embarrassingly the entire village was out combing the mountains looking for us so we actually got we we got found yeah and also from toby and this is a really lovely question what is the most incredible view you've ever seen oh that is a very tough one <laughs> i've seen a lot of incredible views i mean on, on the most recent journey there's something about standing in the middle of wadi rum in jordan in the, this vast desert with these amazing rock formations all around there's something that the, the, the light is so incredible it's this deep red um, I don't know it's a very awe-inspiring place and I just love deserts there's something about the silence and the purity of and the colors that just make it really special so for me on, on the recent journey it's probably there but also the other one that stands out is the view across towards Annapurna from Sarangot Hill in Nepal towards the Himalayas is it has always been one of my favorite views and I've been a couple of times and it, and I'm actually going back in a couple of months just just for that view what do you see <laughs> you see the mountains stretching out as far as the eye can see and it just gives you this incredible sense of humility 
Beautiful. A last question from my friend Christy, who said, do you need anyone to come with you and make you snacks? <laughs> Volunteers are always welcome. I think she's, uh, I think she's volunteering herself for the wife position, actually. <laughs> uh, sadly, she's married with uh, two kids. But, right, uh, yeah. OK. <laughs> and I don't know how good she is at snack making. My last question is always about music, because okay. I personally think, not everyone does, but music and travel go very much hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And if you had to choose one song that reminds you of a place and time, a memorable place and time of travel, what would that song be? <laughs> okay, so this one's quite a funny story. When I left the army back in 2010, I was asked by a friend of mine who was setting up a charity in Africa to, you know, to procure an ambulance. So what I ended up doing, because a very long story short, is buying a couple of fairly old Land Cruisers off eBay, painting them white, getting a load of mates together and doing the most epic road trip of all time, driving through 27 countries all the way from London to Malawi to donate these cars to this hospital. And they're still there being used to this day, I hasten to add. But at the time... It was, Dripping in the rain, <laughs> yeah, the white paint coming off. But um, basically the electrics on them weren't the best. Anyway, um, I asked my mate before we set off to, to basically knock up a CD with a with a sort of selection of africa themed music that we could put in and listen to on the way because i have to say local radio stations in the middle east and africa are pretty naff so off we went and the problem was literally on after the first week or something um there's only so much toto you can well have, the cd there. got jammed <laughs> oh, in no. in the thing and it was it was stuck on it, was, it must have been scratched and it was literally stuck on toto's africa non-stop on loop for two months that was the only option which yeah, so that if there's one song that sticks in my mind it's toto's africa i can see that being quite beautiful at first you know yeah. it's a very evocative song it's got some great for the weird, weird lyrics in it about for the, the fifth thousandth time yeah. though it's a bit much <laughs> can you uh, what what do you envisage when you hear it now it sends a shiver down my spine <laughs> but no it was it was a great trip and uh yeah it reminds me of some very fond memories marvelous well thank you so much for coming on the big travel podcast thank you thank you so much to Levison for gracing the Big Travel Podcast with his true adventurous spirit. I thoroughly enjoyed it and I hope you did too. Next week we have Monisha Rajesh, author of Around India in 80 Trains and Around the World in 80 Trains. 